Let's take our copies of God's Word. Let's turn to the Gospel of Mark. We will return to our study, the Gospel of Mark. We'll actually be at the end of chapter 3, and we'll start in verse 31 and go through Mark chapter 4, verse 20. You might notice throughout the sermon, I will focus a little bit more on the parable in this text than I will the first part and even the ending part to the parable, Uh, but this will be a two-week study in which I will make sure to cover each of the verses. Mark chapter 3. We'll start in verse 31. Please stand in honor of reading God's word. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that... They may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And when they have no root in them, 
themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Father, we praise you for your word. We thank you for its sufficiency. We thank you for its truth and that there are no errors in your word. Praise you for that. Father, in light of that truth, in light of your word, Father, as we have saying, open our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes to see these truths. For Father, we know it's only by your graciousness, it's only by your mercy that we can be revealed these truths by your sovereign hand. Father, give us an attentive spirit, give us comprehension. We need your help, as we do every day and every Sunday at the preaching of your word. Help us, Lord, we humbly ask in your name. Amen. Please be seated. In recent days, a family member approached me with a very specific scenario and a very personal question in which she had and the question was very direct and it went something like this she said what am I to make of my former Sunday school teacher who is now a practicing homosexual she she understood that that person was not safe she understood that that person was not regenerated by the Holy Spirit But in her mind, she was wanting answers. She was wanting clarity. She was wanting an explanation as to how that comes about. How does something of such drastic contrast end up happening? And unfortunately, I could relate to something all too familiar to my family member as one of the first people to tell me about the truth of the Bible, had a very similar trajectory. But ultimately, the answer to that question, of course, those who don't persevere are those who don't belong to the faith. 1 John 2, verse 19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 makes it very clear that those who do not continue, that those who do not endure, that those who do not persevere, they never had saving faith to begin with. Why did they not continue? Why are they not of us? Because they were never of us. 
That's why they didn't continue. So we know that truth. We see that scriptural reference. We understand that truth. But to take it even a step further, what is the play-by-play analysis, so to speak, to such lack of continuance? Or I should say it this way, an appearance that they belong to the faith and then such contrasting rebellion. What's the play-by-play? How does that happen? What's the analysis that we can make sense of that, at least to our finite minds? How does this all go down? How do we make sense of those who seem to be born again, who then altogether reject biblical Christianity? What took place for one to seem so fervent for the faith, only to deny it? By their way of living. Fortunately for us, as Christ followers, fortunately for those of us with our Bibles open, we have a parable that answers these very questions. We have Jesus serving as an expositor, serving as an interpreter, saying every element of this parable and explaining it in great detail for it to make sense to our ears. What a privilege to be able to study this doctrine. What a privilege it is to be able to study this truth. And the big picture this morning is this. The indifferent and the pliable have chosen the world over the Savior. I'll say it again. The indifferent and the pliable have chosen the world over the Savior. The world pliable, of course, is the wishy-washy, the person who is really, really easily influenced, easily bended, so to speak. And we see that character pliable pictured in the allegory, the pilgrim's progress. I've got two points this morning. Number one, we see the purpose, that is the purpose in regards to the parables. And then also, secondly, we see the production, or in this case this morning, the lack thereof. But we'll start first with the purpose. I think it's fitting, well, since, of course, the Word of God describes it in great detail in multiple places, at least three that I can think of off the top of my mind. But doesn't it make sense before we look and examine the first parable here in the Gospel of Mark? Doesn't it make sense for us to ask the question, why parables? What is the objective behind parables? What is the reasoning? What is the intent? Why did Jesus choose to use parables? And I think that answer will give us some clarity, not only in interpreting the parable itself, but also making sense of why Jesus was using parables in the first place. And he makes it very clear as to why he uses parables. And the first reason is this. We see it's for an exclusive audience. An exclusive audience. Look with me just a few verses over, Mark chapter 4, verse 
33. Mark chapter 4, verse 33. After the parable of the mustard seed, we see in verse 33, With many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. Verse 34, he did not speak to them without a parable, but what? Privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. The parables, as we see it here in the Gospels, the parables were for an exclusive audience. It was for the disciples of Jesus Christ. In private, explanatory fashion, this was set aside for those who belong to Jesus Christ. So we see, first of all, we see the exclusive audience in which the parables were directed towards. We see, secondly, exclusive truths. Exclusive truths. In order to see this, I'm turning to Matthew chapter 13. And I'm going to start in verse 10. Matthew 13, and I'm going to start in verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, the very question we've asked together this morning, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has been not been given for to the one who has more will be given and he will have an abundance but from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away according to verse 11 of Matthew chapter 13 to us or sorry to you he says it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven and so Jesus, for his exclusive audience, for his disciples, it is to reveal mysteries. It is to reveal those hidden truths that were once hidden in the Old Testament, but here in the New Testament, these new doctrines, these new truths are being revealed exclusively to those who belong to him. And again, this is being done in private, explanatory fashion to those who belong to him and so we see it's an exclusive audience it's for an exclusive audience we see exclusive truths or as jesus would put it the secrets of the kingdom of heaven but we also see continuing here in matthew chapter 13 we see that it is actually mercy on the condemned Mercy on the condemned. Look with me at verse 13. We understand it's for an exclusive audience. We understand that these exclusive truths are being revealed to those who belong to Christ. But look at the mercy in verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see. And hearing, 
They do not hear, nor do they understand. Now listen to me this morning. If Jesus were to proclaim these truths, and if he were to do it in simple, plain, direct fashion, and those who are already filled with unbelief, those who are obstinate in spirit, those who are rebellious towards the truth of the word of God and rejecting Christ as the Messiah, if Jesus had directly and plainly told them these truths to where they grasped it and it made sense and it clicked, would it not be those who are condemned who would be storing up more and more wrath for the day of judgment, for when they breathe their last. If they were to grasp more truths, they would reject anyway. More wrath would be stored up. So Jesus, in merciful fashion, says, I'm going to present these secrets of the kingdom of God. I'm going to present these truths, these doctrines. I'm going to proclaim them in the form of parables. And we see it's actually on those who are condemned, on those who wouldn't believe anyway, those who have rejected the gospel anyway and refuse to believe. It's a merciful act from God. Now reading this, you might be tempted to think about our gracious, loving, compassionate God. You might be tempted to think, well, does God just want to destroy? Does he just love condemning? Does he just love the destruction of these souls? We're reminded in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We must not lose sense of the perfect, compassionate character of our Creator. But building off of that, in our actual text, Mark chapter 4, we see in verse 11 and 12, this reiterated again, Mark 4, verse 11 and 12, our main text, and He, that is Jesus, said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, here's another reiteration as to why, continuing in verse 12, that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. We see Jesus here giving the meat, the substance of that which is quoted in Isaiah chapter 6. The Gospel of Matthew quotes Isaiah 6 verbatim. Jesus quotes a portion from it and gives the substance of that quote from Isaiah, using it as an explanation as to why he is using the parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. God not having pleasure on the death of the wicked and these truths here in verse 11 and 12, both 
are true at the same time. Both are true simultaneously. So we have these four references. We have these different references. Let's just simply ask the question, what does all this mean for us? What's the big picture as to the purpose or the objective behind the parables? Can I put it in simple terms, as simple and plain as this? To hear and perceive the parables is to have the very Spirit of God ministering to your soul. If I can put it so simply, for the parables to click is to have revelation from God himself. I'm not talking about the revelation of, oh, well, God impressed upon my heart or God told me directly. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about revelation directly from his word and from his spirit. If the light bulb, simply put, if the light bulb goes off in the hearing of these parables, then God is graciously revealing to you the truth as it is written in his word. In his word. But that brings me to point number two, the production. The production. In the gospel of Mark and elsewhere, we see two different responses to that of the word of God, to that of the gospel, these secrets, these doctrines, these truths. Some are productive responses and many are not productive responses. But before we see the production, just as we looked at the objective or the purpose behind the parables, we need to first ask from this specific parable, the parable of the sower. First, let's ask the question, in general, what is being sown? Look at verse 4. What is being sown in this parable? Verse 4, and as he sowed some what? Some seed. As he sowed some seed. So we understand from verse 4, what is being sowed? What is being sown by the sower? We see seed is being sown. And then Jesus, who serves as an interpreter in this passage of Scripture, we see in verse 14, what does the seed represent? What does it mean? Verse 14, the sower sows the what? The word. The seed that is being sown, it is the word of God. That is the picture that is being portrayed for us in this particular parable. And so fittingly, we ask the question, what is so significant about the sowing of the word? Why is that a big deal? Why is that significant? Why is that impactful? Before we look at the responses or the various responses to the word, we need to ask the question, what is significant about the word itself? And the answer to that very question will dictate how we do ministry here at Calvary Bible Church. The answer to that question will dictate how you live your daily 
lives, how you operate as families, how you operate as individuals, how you live your life is dependent on how you answer that question. What is so significant about the sowing or distributing or proclaiming of the word of God? And I'll answer it in two different ways from the word of God Itself And number one, it is this. Why is it significant? Number one, it is that which generates saving faith. It is that which generates saving faith. Not the word itself. Not as if the word has power to generate that saving faith. That's the spirit of God. That is God himself, right? But he uses it as a tool, as an instrument, as that which generates saving faith. We don't worship the Bible. We don't pray to the Bible. We don't have affection for the Bible as if it's a person. But we praise God for his word. But Paul explains the significance of God's word in Romans 10 verse 17. Romans 10 verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of of Christ. How do we have saving faith? How do our kids grow up and become saved? How do we evangelize to the lost? We do it through the word of God. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. Why is it significant that the word of God is being sown in this parable? Because that is what's being sowed, that which generates saving faith. It's kind of a big deal. It is a big deal. So we see that the word of God is that which God uses to generate saving faith. But secondly, the word of God, listen to me this morning, the word of God is sufficient. The word of God is sufficient. If we don't grasp that truth, we will be tempted to resort to worldly tactics. We will be tempted to resort to things contrary to the word of God, that which doesn't generate saving faith. And my first biblical example as evidence to that point that the word of God is sufficient is the story of the road to Emmaus. Do you recall that story? Let's take the time and let's go there together. Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. And let's start in verse 22. Let's start in verse 22. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying, that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. 
some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Jesus, who was disguising himself, Jesus, who had not led them or not allowed them to see that he was the resurrected Savior, that the tomb was empty for a reason, because he, in their midst, was risen. He had conquered the grave. He had fulfilled all righteousness. Here he was, three days later, after being crucified, he was right in their midst. And here they are, doom and gloom. The world is over. People claim that he's risen, but we kind of know the truth that he's not. What is Jesus' response to these doom and gloom people? What is Jesus' response to these people who were filled with unbelief and did not recall the words of Christ? Look at verse 25, a sharp rebuke. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Here it is, verse 27. And beginning with what? Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the what? The scriptures, the things concerning himself. Do you notice Jesus Christ did not resort to to a sob story? Do you notice that he didn't try to toy with the emotions? Do you notice that there wasn't a huge production, a bunch of glitz and glamour? Do you notice that he didn't try to bring the world in to them or try to uh, be sensitive to what they wanted to hear as most churches are known for doing? Where did Jesus turn He turned to the all-sufficient word of God. He turned there knowing that it was enough. And what was the result? Did their hearts not burn within them at the hearing and proclaiming of the word of God? The word of God is sufficient. It's enough. It's enough. Another example, if that's not enough, another example. (laughs) Just turn over a few pages to the left, Luke 16. Luke 16, we'll start in verse 27. Do you recall the story of the rich man and Lazarus? After asking Abraham to send Lazarus down for just a drop of water, just a relief from the anguish that the rich man was currently experiencing, that he was undergoing. He just wanted Lazarus, that poor man who had actually been taken up with the angels, who had been saved. He wanted Lazarus. The, the rich man wanted Lazarus to come down from heaven. He wanted Abraham to send Lazarus down from heaven, just a drop of water to relieve him of the anguish and torment of hell. 
Abraham said no, of course, because of the chasm that was in between, because they both had already died. And the rich man had already rejected Christ. But notice the dialogue, the conversation that continues, Luke 16, verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, him as in Lazarus, Send Lazarus to my father's house, verse 28, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So listen, the rich man wanted this dead figure, this one who had already been in glory, the the one who had already been carried off by the angels to glory, wanted him to go to his father's house and proclaim to his five brothers the truth. And he says, well, if that dead man will come into the house, well, then they will come to saving faith and they will avoid the wrath and they will avoid the anguish that I am currently experiencing. He thinks that is sufficient. But look at verse 29. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Verse 30. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Verse 31. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It is not the testimony of the dead. It is not the dead that comes and will save someone or convert someone. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. The word of God is sufficient the all-sufficient Word of God, more sufficient than even, especially from this specific scenario, than a dead man warning sinners. This is what is being sowed in the parable. It's the all-sufficient Word. It is that instrument, that tool, with which God uses to generate saving faith. And while it is that instrument and that tool that God uses to generate saving faith, unfortunately, all too often, the responses we see to the preaching of the Word of God, indifference, wishy-washy, non-committal, non-surrendering responses to the Word of truth. Don't believe me? This parable says exactly that. So the question that this parable begs us to ask and hopefully answer, how do we respond to the words of Christ? How do we respond to these secrets of the kingdom? How do we respond to the doctrines that are filled with scripture? How do we respond to the truth as it is written in God's word? And perhaps if we take it a step further, not just our response to the Bible, not just our response to preaching, but what do we do with this Jesus? 
what do we do with this Jesus whom Mark has been proclaiming now for almost four chapters that we've gone through verse by verse together? And what I want to concentrate on today are the negative responses, the unfruitful sowing, so to speak. And let's first look at the consumed seed. The consumed seed. Back in Mark chapter 4, I'll look again at verse 4. And as he sowed some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. See, he's okay, a, a seed and a bird and devout. What does this mean? What in the world is going on? You've just hyped up like how we need, it needs to click. You know, if you truly belong to Christ and how it's, it's for his disciples. But, but that doesn't make sense to me. What, what is this symbolically representing? What does this mean? Well, we see Jesus serving as the interpreter here. In verse 15, what does this consumed seed represent from this parable? Verse 15, And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. What is this a picture of? We see in verse 4 that this bird comes and devours it, doesn't even give it a chance. Verse 15, we understand that it is Satan who comes and takes it away immediately. This is a picture of those who sit in the pew Sunday after Sunday, unaffected, unmoved by the preaching of God's word. They have no love for God. They're not stirred in their affections for the Savior. They have no hatred for sin. They have no gratefulness for Christ and His sacrifice. They have no transformed living. They have no desire for holiness. All they have, they sit there like, like bumps on a log. They just sit there with no emotion, with no feeling. They check their watch. They're more concerned about the football game later today than they are about the eternal truths. They're wandering off. They're looking back at the clock. Sunday after Sunday, the Word of God has no impact on their soul. Why? Because in their rebellion, in their rejection, it is Satan who has come and devoured any response, so to speak, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Mere and utter indifference. Indifference. How common is that response to the preaching of the word of God? We see the consumed seed in verse 4, but we also see a reference to the rocky ground, the rocky ground. Look in verse 5 and 6. In the parable of the sower, verse 5 and 6, other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up, okay, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, 
it withered away. Okay, so we see, initially we see there's, there's some hope, there's some, some good signs of this. What in the world does this mean? We see in verse 16 and 17, Jesus interpreting what this means directly. Verse 16, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground. Here's the interpretation. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Does that sound familiar to some people that you've seen, your friends, your family, your co-workers? Initially, they heard it and there was joy. There was happiness. There was excitement. There was zeal. There was fervency towards the things of God, towards these spiritual truths. But verse 17, you notice how the narrative changes? Verse 17, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a little while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. They fall away. I graduated with a young lady, and I think it was right after we graduated together, I heard of this story. I don't know what exactly it was, a, a guest speaker, or some sort of event. I, I'm not even sure what exactly it was. But I remember they gave some sort of invitation at the end after a message or, or whatever, and I heard that she stood up and she said, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. And I remember with her, there were tears. There was excitement. There were hugs. There was laughter. There was all this commendation towards the things of God, towards God himself, towards his word. <laughs> but ten plus years later, I now see social network posts from this same individual who claimed that she had given her life to Christ. <laughs> and she now stands for things completely contrary and in opposition to the things of God. To the things of God. How many people are there? Maybe they don't appear indifferent but maybe even appear joyful and fervent and so excited. And it just seems so clear that they have been born again. But then all of a sudden troubles come and trials come. Tribulation comes, a little bit of humiliation, a little bit of mockery and laughter at their Christian faith. And that they are of the minority. And all of a sudden they start to join the enemy. They start to join crowd. Is this not a similar description of those of Israel and Judah in Hosea chapter 6 verse 4? What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early away. We've had some really significant fog in the last previous days. Perhaps by God's providence. I hadn't even thought of that. Is your love for the Lord like fog in the morning? That as your journey through life continues, just simply fades away? 
Is your love like a morning cloud? Is it like the dew that goes away early? This is a description of those whose faith is wishy-washy at best. Easy come, easy go. Non-surrendered, non-committal. Is this your response to the word of God? Is your response to the gospel of Jesus Christ pliable? Is this you? Last one. We've seen the consumed seed. We've seen the rocky ground. Now let's look at the thorns. Verse 7. The thorns in verse 7. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Let's go straight to the interpretation from the words of Christ himself. Verse 18 and 19, Jesus interprets it for us. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. Do you notice all three of these examples? They're hearing preaching of the gospel. They're hearing the word of God, that which generates saving faith, that God uses to generate saving faith. Every single one. But continuing. They are those who hear the word, verse 19, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Whatever interest they had in surrendering to Christ, whatever interest that they had in the truth of the gospel, whatever interest they had in biblical Christianity, it did not surpass the interest that they had for the things of this world. They're more concerned about their legacy. They're more concerned about their bank account. They're more concerned about their reputation than they are for the Savior of the world. Do you notice how Jesus explains it? The deceitfulness of riches. Aren't they deceitful? Don't they deceive so many? What is it that James said in James 4 verse 4? You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. An enemy with God. Are you a friend of the world? Do you have more interest in riches, in legacy, in reputation, the pride of life? And you do, surrendering to Jesus Christ. This too is a pliable response. A pliable response. Listen this morning. If any of these three categories describe you, you should be filled with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Hebrews 10, verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, of the living God. 
what a fearful thing it is. And consequently, be indifferent no more. Be pliable no more. Don't be like those of the consumed seed who sit in the pew Sunday after Sunday, unmoved, unstirred, showing no love and affection for the Savior, showing no love for the truth of the Word of God. Don't be like the consumed seed. Don't be like the consumed seed. Don't be like those of the rocky ground. Don't be like the girl that I graduated with to have a temporary joy or a temporary excitement and no perseverance. Don't be like those of the thorns. For this too is a pliable response. But instead, I plea with you this morning before it's too late, before you end up like the rich man in Luke chapter 16 in anguish, wanting just a drop of water for just a temporary relief of your eternal condemnation. Listen to my plea with you this morning. Surrender your life to Jesus before it's too late. Turn from this deliberate, willful life of sin and turn in saving faith to Jesus Christ. Trust in his righteousness, not that of your own. For there is none righteous, no, not one. There's only one good, and that's God. Trust in his imputed righteousness. (laughs) It's your response to the word of God. It's your response to the preaching of the gospel. It's what you ultimately do with this Jesus that will make all the difference. And I simply close with asking you this. What is your response? What will you do with this Jesus? What will you do with this Jesus?